Welcome to Follow Him, a weekly podcast dedicated to helping individuals and families with their Come Follow Me study. I'm Hank Smith. And I'm John, by the way. We love to learn. We love to laugh. We want to learn and laugh with you. As together, we follow Him. Hello, my friends. Welcome to another episode of Follow Him. My name is Hank Smith. I'm your host, and I'm here with my miraculous co-host, John, by the way. (laughs) John, we are starting with Jesus's first public miracle today, and I thought, you're kind of a miraculous guy. When I think of all that you've done, all the books you've published, all the talks on cassette, if anybody remembers those, (laughs) all the talks on cassette you've done, you're a miraculous guy, John, by the way. (laughs) Well, when I introduced my dad to my fiance. He said it was a miracle too. So I appreciate that. (laughs) So we get to spend our entire day in the gospel of John today, three chapters, chapters two, three, and four. We needed somebody who knows the scriptures backwards and forwards, and we found him. John, who's with us today? Well, I've been looking forward to this for a long time to have Dr. Robert L. Millett back with us again. Robert L. Millett, former Dean of Religious Education at Brigham Young University, is a professor emeritus of ancient scripture. After receiving bachelor's and master's degrees from BYU in psychology, he earned a PhD from Florida State University in religious studies. Brother Millett is a beloved speaker and the author of numerous books. He and his wife, Shauna, are the parents of six children. On a personal note, I remember, I may have told you this last year when we had Dr. Millett before, but right after I got called to be bishop, I was getting on a 767, if you know what that is, there's a lot of seats on that particular airliner, having some angst, and the Lord put me right across the aisle from Robert L. Millett. Oh, wow. (laughs) I wrote him a note and said, I'm trying to find some joy in this new calling, it's challenging me, and he wrote me this beautiful response, which I kept in my triple combination ever since. So he's been a friend and a mentor to me. And so we're delighted to have him here. Welcome, Dr. Millett. Thank you. By the way, if you'll give me that back, I will try to publish it. Okay. <laughs> it was that good. I think I had it laminated. So <laughs> That's fantastic. That rarely happens, John, to sit next to someone you know, On an airplane, especially that size? That size, we were not going to the same place. He was going someplace. In fact, Pastor Greg Johnson was on that same flight. I don't know if you remember that. You were going to some conference in Atlanta, and so was I, but it was not the same thing. But the Lord put us right there, and I was able to really get some help. So that was a tender mercy, and and to have you there, I appreciate that. Yeah, that's a really great story. I remember it very well. Don't remember what I told you, but I remember the occasion. Yeah. I'd been bishop twice at that point, so I probably had a lot to say. (laughs) Oh, my word. It was about half a page, but it was golden. That's just unfair. (laughs) Yeah. Let's jump in here, Bob. We are in the Gospel of John entirely. How should we enter into these chapters? Is there anything we want to know about the Gospel of John before we jump in? Or should we just jump into John 2? John stands alone in so many ways. There, what I forget what the figures are, but a high percentage, ninety percent of John, is exclusive to John. Ninety-two percent, according to, I think you, in the religion, <laughs> in the religion two eleven student manual. There's a chart that I think came from a book that you had something to do with that kind of showed 92% of John is unique. This one is written for the church. This is called the spiritual gospel. 
I love all the New Testament, but I have to say, when I want comfort, peace, uh, settlement of my heart, I'm often reading either John or the epistles of John. For example, John has conversations between people recorded that are priceless. Long conversations with Jesus. Long conversations yeah. of very different kinds of people. Yeah. Where the other Gospels have sermons, the Gospel of John does seem to have these private conversations. That's right. The other thing I'd say about these conversations is very often what you see is Jesus speaking on one level and the people understanding on a different level. <laughs> <laughs> if it's Nicodemus, he says, born again, and Nicodemus says, birth? If it's the woman at the well, he says, I have water to... She says, water? What? You didn't yeah. bring anything? Yeah. It's just fascinating how that goes. Even into chapter 21, to Peter, lovest thou me? Peter, do you love me? And with a God-like love, I love you like a brother. Peter, do you love me with God-like love? I just love you like a brother. Now, Peter, do you love me with God-like love? I love you with God-like love. It's people hearing him, even his own apostles. They've been gone for food, and they come back, and he says, I have food of this sort. And they go, oh, where'd you get the food? Did you go to the market? We didn't, we didn't <laughs> see you. I remember you getting bread. <laughs> and so even the apostles sometimes. So it shows there are levels of understanding here, and I just love these chapters. That's awesome. Let's just jump in. John chapter 2. We spent some time in John chapter 1 with Dr. Eric Huntsman. Chapter 2, where do you want to start? Let's start with verse 1, and I'll read a few verses. In fact, we'll read one and talk about it. And the third day, there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. I think most scholars believe that the expression third day refers to, it's been three days since Jesus' words to Nathaniel, or the baptism of, of Jesus third day since then, which is what is in chapter 1. Both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto him, They have no wine. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. Marriages back then were generally handled in this way. It was the groom's responsibility to provide funds for the occasion. The bride went to, marched with the group to the, the groom's home. It was an occasion that lasted sometimes up to a week. In, in terms of the, the story here, the Mishnah, which, which would be the rabbinic commentary of, of some of the teachings of the Old Testament, which, which was in an oral tradition for many, many years and wasn't really written down until about 200 AD. The Mishnah says that a virgin her wedding should always be on a Wednesday, for whatever that's worth. I don't know if that it held true in that day, but that's what the Mishnah suggested. What else? Village of Cana. Cana is only mentioned in the Gospel of John, and it's mentioned twice here and in chapter 21. Approximately nine miles north of Nazareth, so from where Jesus had lived his early life. One other thing, one apocryphal tradition holds that Mary was the aunt of the groom. Another tradition holds to the fact that the one being married was John. And if either or both of those are true, that would mean that Jesus would have been a cousin to James and John. But that's just what authorities through the generations or traditions have held. We don't know anything doctrinally that way, but clearly Mary seems to be concerned about what's going on. 
Yeah, and involved, right? Yeah. And very involved. In fact, scholars have said, why is she so troubled? I've read where some scholars say, she's just stating a fact to Jesus. Yeah. We have no wine. We have no wine. But the way it's put in the Gospel of John, it's very clear. She's intending and hoping he'll do something to solve the problem. About that, verse 4, woman, what have I to do with thee? Over and over, I've heard people say, well, that's a pretty disrespectful way of addressing your mother. It isn't. As Elder Talmadge says in Jesus the Christ, it's a lovely way to address your mother. Remember, Jesus uses that same word with Mary at the time he's on the cross. Woman, behold thy son. He's certainly not being disrespectful. The other reason it can't be disrespectful is this. We know Jesus is the only one to be perfect. We know he's the only one that never committed a sin. We know that he was perfect in all ways. That's hard for us to comprehend, us imperfect types, but he was. If that's true, then it's hard to conceive that he's therefore going to be disrespectful to his mother, which is rude, which is in a way sinful. It reminded me of a story Joseph McConkie told me. He said, I was teaching the New Testament. We're well into the Gospels, and this one young woman raised her hand and said, I have something to say. And he said, sure, what? She said, I think Jesus is being very unchristlike here. <laughs> and Joseph said, is that possible? <laughs> the principle coming out of this is, I think it's wise for serious readers of the New Testament to assume the best about Jesus. And the JST softens that a little bit. Yes, it does. Won't you read it? Read it for us, John. Yeah, the, the footnote down below, if you're using paper scriptures like I do, it says, Woman, what wilt thou have me do for thee? That will I do, for mine hour is not yet come. To me, that's simply a way of saying, what would you like me to do? My mission hasn't formally begun, and I've got a little time. Now, isn't that sort of what he's saying? Yep. You mentioned this, but I feel like that a little bit, I hear stuff like this in marriage seminars about direct communication because Mary just says they have no wine and there's no, therefore, there's just kind of, okay, you're supposed to figure out what I'm thinking. <laughs> they have no wine. Well, what do you want me to do about that? And Jesus says that, what would you like me to do? So he gets it when she uses that kind of indirect, they have no wine. I mean, my response might've been, wow. That's a problem. That's, That's too, too bad. bad. <laughs> Verse 5 clearly indicates that she's expecting something she, from him. She, right. That's a good word. She's expecting a response. Do something. Do whatever he tells you to do. We say this is the first public miracle, but we don't know that there weren't miracles performed by Jesus before right. this. Sure sounds like she has something in mind where she says, hey, whatever he tells you to do, do it. No matter how it sounds, you do it anyway. So it does imply, I think it implies some previous experience, don't you, Bob? I do. I think that he has performed miracles before. If that's not true, then I don't know why she would come up with that. <laughs> if she has no experience with him doing something miraculous, why suppose he's going to do it here? Yeah. I don't know how he's going to do this, but whatever he says, <laughs> do it. Whatever he tells you to do, you do yeah. it. Verse 6, there were set there six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews concerning two or three firkins apiece. This would have been water that was used for cleansing, for purification purposes. They would have held the estimate by most New Testament thinkers. Is they would have held about 20 to 30 gallons of water each meaning you're, you're at least around 150 gallons 
of water to begin with. Jesus gives instructions, fill them with water, they fill them. And he saith unto them, draw out now and bear unto the governor of the feast. The governor of the feast was often a relative, someone who had responsibility for the oversight of the occasion. We might have called him the head waiter, or we might have called him the master of ceremonies, the person that's overseeing this, generally a relative. Verse 9, when the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom, and saith unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, then that which is worse. <laughs> but thou hast kept the good wine until now. We learn a little tradition. That is, in a typical Jewish wedding, they serve good wine to begin with. And after a while, when people can't tell the difference, you serve them real. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the watered down stuff. Yeah, wood alcohol. <laughs> the interesting thing here, of course, is that he changed the substance of the water. I remember Brother Matthews making a comment. He said, isn't it interesting that when he performed this miracle, he not only changed the substance, he dated it. He dated the wine. Why? Because we're talking about fermentation. By definition, it's aged. That's right. It's aged. If you had a little conversation, someone drinks it at that moment and says, whoa, this is good. I think this must be 20 B.C. <laughs> <laughs> But one of the people who were there and saw it would say, no, no, you just did it a few minutes ago. I'm telling you, this is 20. He aged it, which I think is very interesting. I remember Brother Matthews going through with us the types of miracles Jesus did. Did he have power over men? Yes. Women? Yes. Children? Yes. Gentiles? Gentiles? Yes. Plants? Yes. Animals? Yes. And then he said time, and he brought up this about this wine must have been aged, in which we all kind of went, whoa, at that point. But that, that's an interesting thought. Mm -hmm. Maybe sometimes the way we measure time or how old something is, maybe occasionally it's not as long as we thought. No. Yeah. Let's go on. Verse 11 says his disciples believed on him. Well, of course they did. <laughs> After then he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother. I suppose if you say, where's Jesus' home? Most people would think he resided in Capernaum, but it's home in you know italics because he often wasn't home. But Capernaum seems to be where he and some of the disciples had been from. It seems to me that John's readers know that Jesus can perform great miracles, if they've already maybe even read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, why does John come along and give us this as a miracle? It's not a bringing a sight back to the blind. Why do you think he lists this one first? Do you think there's something in there for his modern current reader? Well, if you're talking about a miracle that changes the elements of a substance, you're talking about a godlike power. To heal someone is very significant. But to put upon a substance your hands, basically, and it changes in type, that's a different kind of miracle even than a nature miracle. It's kind of a creation type. It is. It seems like a godlike thing, something that only a god could do. Moses was such a powerful type of Christ in so many ways, and it's interesting to me that his first miracle or plague 
you know, through Moses that God did was to turn the, the turning water to blood. And I've wondered about, oh, here's Jesus turning water to wine. Also, the idea of six water pots, that number six being almost complete, almost whole of the law of Moses, and then Jesus doing something greater with that as kind of prefiguring what he was going to do as fulfill the law of Moses. That Moses, Moses is a type of the Messiah. Yeah. So what do you think about that? Do you think there's a, we're supposed to see that? Or is that just kind of a fun one? I remember the first time I read Elder McConkie's The Promised Messiah, and I came across this one page, and I'm not remembering the page number, but he said it's healthy to look for symbolism and likenesses, things that point you to Jesus, to his ministry, to his life. I think what you're talking about is yes. I mean, we don't always know if something's intended, but if it strikes you as a testimony of the Savior, then it's a healthy experience. Yeah, turning water to wine, we actually, in the early days of the church, used wine for the sacrament, and that's representing the blood of Christ, and I kind of wondered if that correlates nicely there. Yeah, I think so. Another one that's probably not intended, but I like, is his ability to change, to change things. If he can change water into wine, he can change someone who feels like they're a bad soul into a good soul. And someone who's deathly ill into a healthy person. Right. And one more thing before we move on, there were days when we went through some verbal gymnastics to try to say that this wasn't fermented wine, this was just grape <laughs> juice. The Religion 211 manual, I, I like the way it puts this, it just says, mm -hmm. um, in our day, the Lord has revealed the word of wisdom, which does forbid consumption of alcoholic beverages. We should avoid judging the people of earlier dispensations by the commandments the Lord has given us in our day. So I think it was probably fermented wine, right? It was wine, or you would call it grape juice. Let's just make a quick comment about the cleansing of the temple. This occurs, it can be discussed in greater detail when you get to the last part of, of Matthew, for example, and Luke. This would be an early cleansing. I would have to say most New Testament scholars do not think there are two cleansings of the temple. They think it doesn't make sense. I don't know. I think about it, and I think the problem existed then, and it existed three years later. The place had been turned into a, a den of robbers. So I don't have a problem believing that this is the first cleansing of the temple, and that the, the second cleansing takes place near that last week of the Savior's yeah, life. After the triumphal entry. Right. I just love that it shows us how the Savior regarded the temple, even when it was a sacred place to him. And we've been seeing that already in the New Testament. Someone else wrote this, and I think it's really a good description. Upon his arrival, Jesus would have found Jerusalem teeming with Jewish pilgrims from all over the Roman world, there to celebrate this foremost of Jewish feasts. Because of the multitudes who came, Passover meant big business for Jerusalem-based merchants. <laughs> In the temple complex, which we would sort of say Temple Square, and by the way, when it says Jesus went into the temple, it's, he's not going into the temple building. He wouldn't have gone. They wouldn't have let him go in the temple. temple when he, go, went on, he went on Temple Square, going on, where they had set up shop, probably in the court of the Gentiles. Vendors were selling oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers were seated at their tables. Since it was impractical to those traveling from distant lands to bring their own animals, the merchants sold them the animals required for the sacrifices at greatly inflated prices. The money changers also provided a necessary service. 
Every Jewish male 20 years of age or older had to pay the annual temple tax. But it could be paid using only Jewish coins because of the purity of their silver content. So foreigners had to exchange their money for acceptable coinage because they had a monopoly on the market. The money changers charged an exorbitant fee for their services. F.F. F. Bruce, who's a great conservative Christian scholar, wrote commentary on God, the Gospel of John, a commentary. He suggested that evidence says that up to 12.5% more than they should have charged. If you've got the monopoly on it, what are you going to do? Well, sorry. That's what we call usury. (laughs) That's right. That's usury. And of course, the question comes up in verse 18, What sign showest thou unto us, seeing thou doest these things? You know, there are two ways you could look at that. I guess there are 20, but there are two I'm thinking of. Literally, they could be saying, what sign or miracle? And he says, destroy this temple. In three days, I will raise it up. And he was talking about his body. We'll come back to that. Or it could just be, by what authority do you do these things? What authority do you do this? To walk into this temple and do what you just did. Remember in John 1, basically, they're saying to John the Baptist, by what authority are you performing? They don't say, what are you doing? What do you, hey, what is that you're doing? No, they know what he's doing. He's baptizing. By what authority do you do it? Jesus says, oh, I'll give you a great sign. I'll be put to death in three days. I'll come back to life. Notice verse 20. They said to Jesus, 40 and six years was this temple in building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? The temple there had begun being built in 17 B.C., and it went until 30 A.D. 17 B.C. would have been back in the 18th year of Herod the Great. They'd been working on it for 46 years. That seems like a long time, but when we think about how long it took us to build the Salt Lake Temple, it took 40 years. But he spake of the temple of his body. When therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this unto them. Later in Matthew 26, that same kind of thing will come up. They'll remember the cleansing, and say it was his body about which he spoke. This is one of those points you talked about, Bob, where he says one thing and they hear something else. That's right. And I think that verse 22 is important. We've talked about this a little bit, Hank. The idea that the Gospels were kind of written after the resurrection and that it seems like at the time a lot of the apostles were in a state of not fully knowing what was going on. So this verse 22 is clarifying. After he was risen from the dead, they hey, yeah, he did say that, didn't he? <laughs> and they remembered all this stuff. I don't know what your previous guest told you about dating, and we're never sure about that. But I think we usually conclude that John and the epistles of John were written fairly late. John could have been as late as 90 AD and the epistles somewhere around 95, 96. So John would have had many years to reflect upon this story and to make. And you notice how John blends in much as Moroni or Mormon does in the text of the Book of Mormon, some commentary here and there. Okay, let's go to chapter three. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And we say ruler of the Jews, we mean someone who belongs to the highest governing body of the Jews, which was called the Sanhedrin, made up of 70 members, made up of scribes, who would have been Pharisees, Sadducees, who would have been, excuse me, the priests, who would have been Sadducees, and other aristocratic types in town, picking up that body. And the body is presided over by the high priest, the senior high priest, as it were, there in the temple complex. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, let's pause there. 
by night, there seemed to be, and we don't often notice this as you're reading along, even in the first chapter of Acts, you find a reference made to many of the priests believed on him, but did not get public with it because of the fear they had for being put out of the synagogue. Clearly, Nicodemus has seen some things, has heard some things. He comes by night. I presume it's because there's a lot at stake in his case. He's prominent in the Sanhedrin and known, as we'll say, see in a few moments, known as a one of the great teachers. Comes by night so as not to be noticed, not to be seen, which I don't think that's too sinful. It seems to me like... Right. He's doing what he needs to do. I want to have a conversation with Jesus. I want to find out. Yeah. And this language, the same came to Jesus by night, said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. That's a great tribute to him, isn't it? A teacher come from God, because you've done so many miracles. And then it's as if... Jesus answers the question that Nicodemus may have had in his mind. I'm wondering if Nicodemus didn't have in his mind, what must I do to gain eternal life? Which seems to be everybody's question, you know. But Jesus answers it before he asks it. And the answer is, verily, verily, I say unto verse 3, verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? I want to talk about that. This is the one where I'm going to take a different slant. Latter-day Saints have usually interpreted this as, well, Nicodemus is pretty ignorant of what this is all about. and Metaphor. yeah. Yeah, yeah, he just doesn't know what, he's missed the whole thing. I don't think so. I've read this so many times, and what comes to my mind is this. I thought of Ebenezer Scrooge. I'm too old to change, he said. I think Nicodemus is saying, do you realize what you're asking me to do? Can you conceive what you're saying to me that I would have to do to gain eternal life? I think it's his way of saying, I'm not sure I can pull this off. Can an old dog learn new tricks? Can an old dog learn new tricks? I, I don't think he's ignorant at all. This is the man that's very bright, and he seems to be a very righteous man. I don't think he misunderstands. Let me give you, for example, I just made a, a few notes. The doctrine of spiritual rebirth is not just a New Testament doctrine. I'm going to read from a couple of Old Testament passages. Here's from Jeremiah 31. This shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. Here's Ezekiel 36. I will take you from among the heathen and gather you out of all countries and will bring you into your own land. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you and you shall be clean from all your filthiness, from all your idols will I cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you shall keep my judgments and do them. Both of those very descriptive of spiritual rebirth. Do you know what I'm saying? Did you, were you going to do Psalm 51? Create in me a clean heart, a renew a right spirit within, within me. me. Yeah. Here's even from the book of Jubilees, which should have been an Old Testament apocryphal work. Listen to this. 
But after this, they will return to me in all uprighteousness and with all their heart and soul, and I shall create for them a holy spirit, and I will purify them so that they will not turn away from following me from that day and forever. And their souls will cleave to me and to all my commandments, and I shall be a father to them, and they will be sons to me. To say that Nicodemus didn't understand new birth, I think, is naive. I think he knew what new birth meant. Now, let's analyze this a little more carefully. Except a man. Joseph Smith said, It's one thing to see the kingdom of God and another thing to enter into it. He said, A man must have a change of heart to see the kingdom of God and must subscribe to what he called the Articles of Adoption to enter therein. He must have a change of heart to see the kingdom of God. Let's take this in something we can all appreciate. Two missionaries, two sisters, let's say, are teaching the gospel to a family that shows some interest. And the sisters begin to notice the more times they come and the longer they're there, things happening to these people, they begin to see what you're talking about is true. They begin to understand things they didn't understand before. Here's something that I think you'll find interesting. This is the prophet Joseph Smith again. Daniel Tyler, a young man, heard the prophet Joseph Smith speak on John 3, 3 through 5 in a sermon. And this is the way Daniel Tyler records it. The prophet said that the birth spoken of in John 3, 3 was not the gift of the Holy Ghost, which was promised after baptism, but was a portion of the Spirit which attended the preaching of the gospel by the elders of the church. The people wondered why they had not previously understood the plain declarations of Scripture as explained by the elders, as they had read them hundreds of times. When they read the Bible now, it was a new book to them. This was being born again to see the kingdom of God. They were not in it, but they could see it from the outside, which they could not do until the Spirit of the Lord took the veil from before their eyes, like he does with the father of King Lamoni, or with Lamoni, takes the veil from their eyes. It was a change of heart, but not of state. They were converted, but were yet in their sins. Although Cornelius, later in Acts 10, had seen a holy angel, and on the preaching of Peter, the Holy Ghost was poured out upon him and his household, they were only born again to see the kingdom of God. Had they not been baptized afterwards, they would not have been saved. Jesus is really describing here a two-step process. You've got to first come to see the kingdom of God. Those investigators have to, as they hear the sisters preach and teach, and as they now read Scripture and suddenly the Bible begins to make more sense to them than it ever did, they're coming to see the kingdom of God. They recognize those two sisters as representatives of the Lord, as servants of the Lord, and they're seeing things with new eyes. But they can't just stay that way. They must receive the articles of adoption, which are the, uh, the first principles and ordinances of the gospel, the means by which we're adopted into the family of the Lord Jesus Christ. They must do that before they can be saved. And so this is a pretty heavy conversation here about new birth. And I believe Nicodemus understands what he's saying. And I think he understands the cost that is associated with this. I'm glad you talked about that, the difference between seeing and entering. And when I think of this, I think of the day of Pentecost. Men and brethren, what shall we do? They just saw it. And now it's like, how do we enter? When they ask that question, yeah. That's right. We see it. What do we do now? What do we do? Peter answers, repent and be baptized. I have never understood this, and you have such a good understanding with evangelicals, and especially Baptists. I'm wondering, 
we see being born again, being baptized in water. That's an event in a process of being born again. But do the Baptists say baptism is a necessary thing, or do they want to say that's a work and therefore, or is it just an inner being born again, a spiritual thing? It's a good question. Let me give you an an example, an experience of my own working with some evangelicals. Generally speaking, I think this is pretty well across the board. Evangelical Christians do not believe the ordinances are necessary. They do not believe they're necessary. And I can understand why they take the position. They would say, well, you're saying that they need more than Jesus. They need more than salvation in Christ. Well, I've been told that many times by my evangelical friends. And no matter how I tried to explain our position, they believe differently. The occasion happened back in 1997 that Brent Topp, my associate dean and I, went with a pastor friend of mine and his associate pastor to California to visit with a prominent evangelical preacher from that area. We attended his Sunday morning service, Sunday evening service, and then we met with him to talk doctrine on Monday. But on on Sunday morning, he began his sermon by saying, I want to tell those of you who are here that have been coming and coming and coming that haven't been baptized, you need to get baptized. And he chewed on them for quite a while. He said, I know many <laughs> of you. I love you, but you need to get baptized. Well, when the, after the meeting was over and we're driving back to our hotel, I turned to one of them and said, so is baptism essential or not? There was a pause, of course. And one of them said, well, it's necessary, but not essential. I said, you want to tease that apart Clarify. (laughs) (laughs) Clarify those two words. Sound like the same word. Yeah. Yeah. He said, well, and I can understand where he's coming from. He says, it's what Christians do. A good Christian will be baptized. So for us, if there is a major difference between us and the Protestant world, this would be it. Now, with Catholics, they would say, of course. Let me say it this way, too. There's a huge chunk of the world religious world that believes that in order to be born again, you must participate in, partake of the sacraments of the church. There's a huge segment of Christianity that believes being born again consists of having a personal spiritual experience with Jesus. Obviously, this is the Catholics, and here's the Protestants. Now, where are the Latter-day Saints? Think about this, how simple this is from Joseph Smith. He says, being born again comes by the Spirit of God through ordinances. Ordinances become so specific. We certainly have to have the ordinance of baptism. We then have to have the gift of the Holy Ghost, or as Nephi taught us in 2 Nephi 31, you're not going to gain a remission of sins because it's by the power of the Spirit that you're cleansed. Remission of sins comes not through the water. We, we speak figuratively of saying being, having our sins washed away, but that isn't really the case. You're baptized by water, and the second part of the baptism is the baptism by fire and the Holy Ghost. And it's the Holy Ghost that cleanses us of sin. Okay, here's where we're getting to some of the stuff I think is really interesting. <laughs> by the way, in verse 6, that which is born of flesh is flesh, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. I think he's saying here, much like what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, he said, look, The things of God are only understood by the Spirit of God. The things I'm talking about are spiritual things. These are not just rational expressions, I'm telling you. These are things of God, and this is the only way you're going to understand this. I had a dear friend, wonderful man, who, and I'd had many discussions with him on religion, and he was very impressed by by the church, very impressed by the members, had a brilliant mind, 
and we would have conversations and, and I would talk about things spiritual and he would come back with things intellectual. And I would try to encourage him to look toward the spiritual. And years went by and, and finally one day I just said to him, you'll never, ever understand or feel the truthfulness of what we've been talking about or you'll never really be the person you know you can be unless you pursue this in a spiritual way. He went quiet, and I thought, oh, I've hurt his feelings. But I didn't. He said, I know you're right. Well, not long after that, he was baptized. In other words, the things of God, it cannot be an intellectual experience alone. It's got to be a spiritual experience. A person who knows the gospel is true because it makes good sense. Heck, that's a good thing. I mean, you can't fight that. Or it works for me. I hear people say, well, that, that's good too. But there better be something in the soul. There better be something in the heart that God has touched. In fact, so much so that I know it's spiritually true, even though I can't give you an intellectual explanation for this or that. Does that make sense? So there's a learning by study and by faith element too. That's right. And too often in our day, everybody just wants to learn by study. Verse 8, a strange verse indeed. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. Now keep in mind that the word rendered here is wind. In Hebrew, the word is ruach, and in Greek, which is this would have been from, is the word pneuma. And they both mean wind, breath, or spirit. It's as if the Lord is saying, the Spirit goes where it will. You sense it. You can even hear the sound. By the way, the word sound could, re could be rendered voice. You hear the voice, but you can't tell where it came from and where it's going. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. Now, this is profound, I think. I think it's important for Latter-day Saints and frankly for all Christians to know we cannot program the Holy Ghost. I remember sitting in a class once where the teacher began with this. Welcome, brothers and sisters, to class. Today, we're going to have a magnificent, powerful spiritual experience. <laughs> and I remember thinking to myself, I wonder if the Holy Ghost is saying, oh, yeah? yeah. Well, we'll see. <laughs> Watch out. <laughs> yeah. We can't program. We can't produce. We can't manufacture a spiritual experience. We can't use emotion to produce a spiritual experience. It doesn't happen that way. It works in the reverse. You may have a spiritual experience which brings with it deep emotion. Goes where it will. You can't program it. We can set the stage. If I'm a teacher, I can make the classroom a place that seems to be a reverent place. I might have beautiful, inspiring music playing in the background and, and so forth. But we can't say, if I do this, the Holy Ghost will do this, this, and this. No, he will not. We don't have that kind of power. Now, there's another way of talking about this verse, and that is, it's one thing to have the Spirit of the Lord, and it's another thing to feel it. People can have the Spirit and not necessarily be overwhelmed spiritually. And I think this is crucial. Let me give you two illustrations. One of my favorites is the illustration with Mother Teresa. Here's this wonderful woman. She becomes a nun at 18. And before two very many years, she proposes to the Vatican that there be a special order of the Catholic Church set up 
just for those who would do things a little different, who won't wait for people to come to them. They will go out into the streets and bless the lives of people out there. Missionaries of Charity was the name of the order. She did that for 50 years there in Calcutta, India. Anybody almost in America that ever read a book or read the newspaper or listened to the news would have heard of Mother Teresa. Everybody knew her as the embodiment of a charitable person. But there was something about her they didn't know. And we didn't find out about it until a year after she'd passed away. One of the men who had been one of her confessors, that is her, the person to whom she would go, perhaps a bishop or a cardinal to confess, one of her confessors compiled the letters that she had written to the Vatican and pulled together journal diary entries, all of which said things like this. I just can't feel God's approval. I feel like I'm in the dark. I can't feel close to God. I know he loves me, but I can't feel it. And it goes on and on and on. And you say, my goodness, how can a woman who is so involved in spiritual things not be overwhelmed with the Spirit? And my answer is, I don't know. But what did she do? Did she stop because she wasn't feeling the Spirit or the feeling of love of God like she thought she should feel? No. She kept right on. And if you want to talk about faith, that's faith. You act because you know it's the right thing to do. The second illustration, of course, when I had my heart attack in 2001, I was serving as the state president. It was a terribly bad time to have a heart attack. So I didn't schedule it. It came. <laughs> it didn't ask. It didn't say, hey, could, do you got time for a heart would attack? Would now today? be a good time. Yeah. <laughs> it didn't say Thursday would be a nice day for us. What do you think? <laughs> It just hit. Here's one of the things. Not only did the world seem dark to me for several months, I'd never been depressed in my life. I'd had my bad days, but I'd never had this experience. I could not feel the Spirit the same way. I was prone to interpret that as, I don't have the Spirit. But weirdly enough, I carried on as a stake president as best I could. I spoke in stake meetings. I spoke at stake conferences. I continued as a teacher at BYU teaching, not feeling what I had once felt. But having students or members of my state come up and say, I've never been so moved. This was wonderful. Thank you. The spirit was so strong. I meet people who are depressed often. And one of the characteristics of some people is that they don't feel the spirit in the same way. That doesn't mean they don't have it. It just means that for now, they're not feeling it the way they wish they could feel it. And so I think we can't always rely upon, do I have overwhelming feelings of spirituality. We can't wait for that before we can sense that we have the Holy Ghost. I think this verse is saying the Holy Ghost can come and go. It's not something we can say, I'm going to do this and I'm going to have the Spirit, and I'm going to do that and the Spirit's going to produce a marvelous experience. Jesus could do that, but you and I can't. We can get stuck sometimes in thinking, well, I want to be a good ministering brother and sister, but I want to do it for the right reason. So I'm just going to wait until I feel the perfect motivation for it. And if we did that, nothing would ever happen. So we can stagnate that way. So the test that Mother Teresa had, having to persist in what she knew was right on whatever levels, even when she didn't have the confirming of the Spirit, I think that's a test the Lord gives us sometimes. What will they do when things don't make sense? What will they do when they're not feeling it? Will they continue in God, to use a Section 50 phrase? I mean, I search my soul again and again. What sins are you guilty of? 
what have you done that's wrong or bad? And I honestly couldn't come up with anything. And it wasn't until later that I began to reflect on it. And as I was reading John 3 one day, I thought, I don't have complete control over the Spirit. And sometimes circumstances in life, in this case, a physical condition, whether it be depression or a horrible physical ailment, can keep us from feeling like we wish we would feel spiritually. But it doesn't mean we don't have the Spirit, because we very well might and probably do. I think that will bless a lot of people, just hearing that sort of thing, that sometimes we move forward kind of not knowing beforehand as Nephi or not feeling that accompaniment. And maybe even sometime we'll look back and say, huh, I was being guided back then. I didn't know it at the time, but... Well, you know, it's the person that says, the way I feel right now, I shouldn't even go to church. No, mm. it's better to go to church. Yeah, it's better. And you come home from church and you say, yeah, that was good. Or I don't feel like ministering today. So what? You do it. Yeah. And you have a good experience and you come home and you say, that was the right thing to do. Like you're saying, we can't wait for some prompting to, to get us to do things. Yeah, I just think there's some things we have no control over except putting ourselves in a position to enjoy the Spirit. I think that's all I want to say about that. Anything else we ought to say on that? Wind blows where it will. I like that. You can't. Go out there and try to control the wind. Challenge anybody. Go out there and tell the wind what to do and when to blow. And you'll find out you don't have a lot of power over that. You just got to put yourself in a position to That's correct. To feel it. So we better move. Nicodemus, verse 9, answered and said unto him, How can these things be? <laughs> Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a master of Israel? That means really master teacher. <laughs> Are you the master teacher and you don't know these things? And then verily, verily, I say unto thee, we speak that we do know and testify that we have seen and you receive not our witness. Interesting language. It's similar to that verse up above. That which is of born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. We talk about the things that we know. If you've had spiritual experience, you can talk about the Spirit. If you don't have the Spirit working, it's hard to talk about the Spirit with any authority. And you receive not our witness. It seems like you won't listen. And who's we? This is me and John the Baptist and my apostles. When he says we, I, I love that he says our. Sure. There are those of us who know, and we testify we do know, we've seen. Kind of like the Doctrine and Covenants, what, 46, the gifts of the Spirit. To some it is given by the Holy Ghost to know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and was crucified for the sins of the world. And the next verse is so powerful. It's also given to others to know, to believe on their testimony, to believe on their testimony and know that way, like most of us did. My parents believed. I believed my parents were people of integrity. I believed. That was my beginning. Or I had priesthood leaders that inspired me, or I had Sunday school teachers that touched me until I gain my own. Yeah, you believe on the testimony of others. Okay, this all leads up, of course, to the most quoted scripture in history, probably verse 16. He talks a bit first about the experience in Numbers 21, about the Israelites being afflicted with serpents, what the Book of Mormon helps us understand, fiery flying serpents, meaning these are little critters that bite you. It doesn't kill you, but it causes a lot of pain. Jesus tells that story and then says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I'm afraid, I remember my old friend Joseph McConkie saying this. He said, Some of the other translations just don't give it its due. The NIV reads, 
For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, or the New Revised Standard Version, one and only Son, or Revised English Bible, his one and only Son. I remember Joseph saying, this is denying us our birthright, because we're his sons and daughters as well. We're not just creatures. I read verse 16, the first thing I think of is in the Book of Mormon, Knowest thou the condescension of God? I know that he loveth his children, but I don't know the meaning of all things. Yeah. Elder Bruce R. McConkie said about John 3.16, This is perhaps the most famous and powerful single verse of Scripture ever uttered. It summarizes the whole plan of salvation, tying together the Father, the Son, His atoning sacrifice, that belief in Him which presupposes righteous works, and ultimate eternal salvation for the faithful. That's from Doctrinal New Testament Commentary, Volume 1, page 144. And I have another, Hank. Elder D. Todd Christofferson, closer to our time, said, The scriptures speak of the new and everlasting covenant. The new and everlasting covenant is the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, the doctrines and commandments of the gospel constitute the substance of an everlasting covenant between God and man that is newly restored in each dispensation. If we were to state the new and everlasting covenant in one sentence, it would be this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's from April 2009 General Conference from Elder Christofferson. You know, the word condemn is interesting. God sent not the, the next verse, sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. I love that verse because Jesus didn't come to point his finger and say, I got you. Yeah, I'm not looking for reasons to hurt you. That's right. And in, I, the word condemn comes up again back with the woman uh, caught in adultery. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? Mm. She said, No man, Lord. And he, Jesus said, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. You know, when a priesthood leader has someone confess a major transgression, it certainly isn't his responsibility to condemn them. And for that matter, not anybody condemn them. It's a harsh judgment on someone which we're not in a position to render. That's a beautiful, beautiful concept. He didn't come to condemn the world. He didn't come to catch the world in sin. He came to help us. But isn't Satan good at selling that the other way, though? Religion, oh, I would just feel condemned if I went to church. Oh, I'm not perfect enough to go to church. And we've just been done looking at the Christmas chapters, which over and over describe the gospel, and in the Book of Mormon, too, as glad tidings, great joy. But Satan sells it as, you'll just feel worthless if you go to a church or something like that. I think he's so good at m making it the opposite. I couldn't go to church. I'd feel terrible. John, I think it puts upon us who are in church that day, to help that not to happen. That is, to rally around a person and say, it's so good to see you here. Gosh, it's good to see you. Glad you have. Come sit here with me and my wife. In other words, you're not, this person brings a heavy burden, probably. We all do. And we need to lift it, not push it down harder. How about we look at verses 19 and 20. This is the condemnation that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. In this verse, for every one that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, 
that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. Doeth truth. From the Greek perspective, truth is something you learn and you know it's cognitive. But from the Hebrew perspective, it's something you do, it's something you are. You do the truth, meaning you live truthfully. And what's your standard? I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's our standard against which we judge. You don't just learn the truth. You do the truth. You embody the truth. I've often said to students, he says he's the way, the truth, and the life. He didn't say, I came to show you the way. He said, I am the way. He didn't say, I've brought you the truth. He is the truth. He didn't say, I can point to you the life. No, he is the life. He embodies this. And we judge truth by him. We say, is it Christ? Would Christ do this? I actually have you in my margin, not literally, but I have that note. <laughs> That's because pretty serious. I remember, I remember you teaching us that, that to know the truth is one thing, to do truth. And then I put Alma 5320, you become truth. They were men, the stripling warriors are described, who were true at all times. It's not that they were men who knew the truth. No, they were men who were true. You become a true person even. It can be described that way when you know what to do and you do what you know. Yeah, well said. And isn't in the Doctrine and Covenants where truth and light are brought together again? The Lord seems to always put these two together, truth and light. The more truth you live, the more light you receive. Elder Russell M. Nelson spoke once at a large devotional for faculty and staff at BYU. And he gave a talk called Truth and More. Truth and More. People will often want to bang you with the truth, but almost always there's something associated with truth. Light and truth. Truth and righteousness. It's just uncanny how often truth is always linked to something. We learn in verse 22 that Joseph Smith translation helps us here with verse 22 and over on, in fact, in the next page over in, into chapter 4, helps us to understand Jesus did baptize people, but that basically, in many cases, he let the apostles do it, that they might have the experience. When my dad was bishop back in Louisiana, I was a priest and I remember how many times we had people come into the church, and we could have had a number of people perform the ordinances, but Dad would call upon me or my priest friends, not just to baptize them, but to ordain them. If they didn't have someone they wanted to ordain them, our priests would ordain them. Why? Giving us experience in that ordinance. And I think Jesus, he baptized people. He wasn't opposed to doing it himself, but often he let the apostles do it. We see that again at the Mount of Transfiguration. He could give Peter, James, and John the keys, but he calls upon Elijah and Moses. How could you dramatize more which keys they're bringing than to have yeah. people mm. associated with the gathering of Israel and people associated with the sealing powers come and deliver them? Verse 23, John also was baptizing in Enon near to Salem. I don't think we know much about Enon. Most people have no idea where it is near to Salem because there was much water there, of course, implying there's your baptism by immersion. If you only had a little stream that was only about six inches deep, you could pour and you could splash, but you couldn't baptize them. You couldn't immerse them. 27, John the Baptist. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. Ye yourselves bear me witness that I said, I'm not the Christ, but that I am sent before him. 
He that hath the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. That, that moves me to the core. There was a man, John the Baptist, he knew his responsibility and he knew what was not his responsibility. He knew when to fade off into the sidelines and let the true voice be heard. I just think that speaks volumes about John the Baptist and his character. He's the friend of the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom. That's not a bad thing to be known as. Yeah, it's not my day, it's his day. He rejoices at the bridegroom's voice. I love that too. It's not threatened by it. It's not a rival. I am so thrilled to hear the bridegroom's voice. And my job is to fade into the background here. Let's look at verse 34 and we'll move on to chapter 4. Verse 34, For he whom God hath sent speaketh the words of God. For God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him. The Joseph Smith translation at the bottom of the page in your Bibles, For God giveth him not the Spirit by measure, for he dwelleth in him even the fullness. Christ had a fullness of the Spirit. Here's an, an affirmation of that. The prophet Joseph Smith said, Where is the man that is free from vanity? None ever were perfect but Jesus. And why was he perfect? Because he was the Son of God and had the fullness of the Spirit and greater power than any man. Some of you, John, you especially might know one of my favorite sermons that Elder Bruce R. McConkie delivered was delivered in September of 1976 entitled Jesus Christ and Him Crucified. It's in that BYU devotional. Actually, it's a BYU fireside. Elder McConkie he says, you know, we're told we have to be perfect to be saved, but nobody becomes perfect in this life. He said, only the Lord Jesus could do that. And he had an advantage over us. And that was he possessed the fullness of the spirit. He was the son of God. Obviously, the principle here is thank heavens that he has power to do things we cannot do. C.S. Lewis gives the illustration of a drowning man out there, and you see him, and you go out as best you can, and you extend a rope or you extend a, a stick to him. Can you imagine him screaming back to you, hey, that's not right. You have both feet on the ground. It's his feet on the ground, Lewis says, that makes him possible to save you. It's his advantage that allows you to be saved. Thank heavens we have somebody <laughs> that is of a different order than we are, that has powers that we can't even understand. Yeah, <laughs> that's a great that's example. A great, great analogy, yeah. Please join us for part two of this podcast. Welcome to part two with Dr. Robert Millett, John chapters two through four. This verse 30 is important to me. When we talked before with Dr. Steve Harper about this, but just briefly, the idea of a spiritual eclipse, Joseph McConkie in a classroom showed us a picture of, of an eclipse once, and he said, what's happening? Well, the moon's in front of the sun. And he said, what happens then if anyone or anything gets in front of the S-O-N, the sun? And he said, that's a spiritual eclipse. And 
shook his finger at us and said, don't ever become a spiritual eclipse. And what a wonderful metaphor. I've never forgotten. Teachers really need to take heed. The issue isn't how impressive I am. The issue is how I can point myself. We've had teachers that did it the right way. And that is, you never left that person's class saying, wow, this person is powerful. I've never heard anybody that knew the scriptures that well. But you do leave deeply touched. Maybe you're saying, I want to go read, or I want to go study. Yeah, the temptation is to get them pointed toward you rather than to the Savior. And I think that's a scary business, meaning they're picking up on your charisma more than they are on the Lord himself. The outcome that you're after is that people are closer to the Savior, or they're intrigued. I think that we've talked about that series called The Chosen, and what I like is people are saying, wow, I got to read that and see how the scriptures actually described what happened there. And we all know they take a little bit of license in that show, but if it's getting people to open up and read, I like that. There's a humanity about Jesus and the apostles in The Chosen that is so moving, very touching. That's why millions are just in love with that series. Okay, chapter four. Let's start with verse five. Then cometh he to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Sychar would be what we would know as Shechem, as it's called elsewhere in the Old Testament, for example. Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. That well, I think most people believe the well is about seven to eight feet wide, about a hundred feet deep. It's fed by springs down in the earth, and so water was constantly coming there. The sixth hour would, of course, been noon. Jesus comes and sits down at the well. There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. Could I have a drink? For the disciples were gone away into the city to buy meat, buy food. Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. We need to talk about that. Sounds like she's saying, we shouldn't be talking to each other. Jesus would have been condemned, of course, for talking with her, and she would be condemned. Think about the fact that when the Assyrians came in in 721 and basically destroyed the northern kingdom, that anciently, often what kingdoms would do who are successful in winning a war is they will demoralize you by, one, taking many of your people to their country and taking some of their people and putting them in your country. And that's exactly what happened after the northern tribes were taken captive. People came into Judea and people and other parts of Israel, and they began to live there. And many of them brought their ideals, their religious, false religious beliefs and practices with them. Eventually, there began to be intermarriage, and they grew up a people that came to be known as the Samaritans. And the Jews looked upon them as kind of half-breeds and uh, not worthy of spending time with. Let me just read a few things that were beliefs. I made a list of things that are beliefs of the Samaritans. One, they only accepted the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses. They did not accept the rest of the Bible, the other books of the Old Testament. 
They believe that Moses was the final seal of the prophets. He's the prophet that they hold up. Third, they believed in Jehovah alone after their own fashion. Most of the people by the New Testament times. A belief in one God, Jehovah. A belief that Mount Gerizim was the holy mount. This is in Shechem. And that their temple should be built there and their sacrifices should be all offered there rather than any other place in Israel, including Jerusalem. And you can imagine the ire that brought up with the Jews toward them. And finally, this one, which isn't as obvious from the scripture itself, but a belief in what was called a taheb, T-A-H-E-B, or restorer, who would bring in a new dispensation, teach the law, reestablish proper worship, and they believed in a final day of reward hereafter for the righteous and punishment for the wicked. The Jews, of course, looked upon the Samaritans as ritually impure. It was said, this is kind of gross, but it said, Samaritan women were, according to one passage in the Mishnah, menstruants from the cradle, which is a pretty harsh thing to say. For that matter, Jesus drinking what she offers would have made Jesus ritually impure by the standards of among the Jews. Now, we come then to verse 10. Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldst have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. Now here again, Jesus is going to be speaking on one level, and she's going to be understanding on another. <laughs> the woman saith unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence then hast thou living? Where did you get this living water? Meaning flowing water. Flowing water. Where did you get this? Totally missed it. Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well, and drank thereof himself, and his children, and his cattle? Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. I noticed he didn't answer that first question. You greater than our father Jacob? <laughs> well, actually. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point, Hank. <laughs> yeah, yep. He doesn't answer yep. that question. I'll go to your second question. <laughs> but whosoever drinketh the water I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman saith unto him, Sir, uh, I'd like to have some of this water sure. so I don't have to come back to this well and uh, draw. You can see how fascinating and beautiful this is. He's talking to her and she's missing the point. And then, of course, he things get a little more touchy here. Verse 16, Jesus saith unto her, Go call thy husband and come hither. The woman answered and said unto him, I have no husband. Jesus said unto her, Thou hast well said. You've spoken the truth. I have no husband. For thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband. In that saidst thou truly. <laughs> it was believed that Jews, it would have been true probably for Samaritans too, should never have more than three marriage partners. She would have been considered grossly immoral. Okay, grossly immoral. That would be, again, why... She comes late in the day. Women usually went in the evening, coolness of the evening, to draw water. She did not want to go then. She chose a different time to go there because she knew the kind of scolding and blasting she'd get from the super righteous. Then the woman saith unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. One of the real profound points in, yeah, in the scripture. Yeah, you think? <laughs> 
Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus saith unto woman, Believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. Now, people read that latter part, Latter-day Saints read that and say, well, so it was Judaism the way to go, or was Jesus' gospel the way to go? Well, I think this is a way of saying the Jews have revealed through Scripture Jehovah and who God is and who we should be worshiping and how we should be worshiping. It sounds like she's saying, well, who's right? The Jews are the Samaritans. And he's saying, listen, the Jews have the rightful temple. That's right. We're in the right place. The hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father, in verse 21. I'm not completely sure what that means. I suppose it could have reference to, by 70 AD, it won't matter much yeah, because the Romans yeah. are going to come in and destroy what you have here. But then we get into the, the essence of this little conversation. The hour cometh and now is when true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. And then the next verse, God is a spirit, as we read it in King James. And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, of course, that isn't the way it reads. It reads, God is spirit. God is spirit. Well, the 93rd section of the Doctrine and Covenants says man is spirit. To say God is spirit is the same thing as saying God can only be understood by the power of the Spirit. God can only be approached by the power of the Spirit. God can only be grasped by the power of the Spirit and spiritual things. I had this thrown in my face so many times as a young missionary. <laughs> That's ridiculous. You believe God has a body. It says here, God is a spirit. No, it says God is spirit. Man is spirit as well. The woman said, I know the Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. When he has come, he will tell us all things. And this is one of the first very direct statements. I that speak unto thee am he. Now, how scholars can read the Gospel of John and not believe that Jesus, I mean, I've heard so many times through the years, Jesus never told the people who he was. Well, he's telling her, I am the Messiah. And using that phrase, I am. That's right. Something I didn't understand way back was that just as there are liberal and conservative in political realms, there are liberal and conservative in Christianity. And that some, the far end of the liberal end would say, well, Jesus was a great moral teacher, but he yes. was not divine. And I think one of President Benson's strong things about the Book of Mormon was its declaration that Jesus is the Son of God. And can you talk about that a little bit? Now, some scholars would say Jesus never said he was the Son of God. Yeah, just a, a little bit of a historical background, if I can. In the early 1920s, a movement grew up in the United States that came to be known as liberal Protestantism. It was affected, of course, by what we would call higher criticism or literary, critical, historical studies of the Bible. I remember when I first got into a class at Florida State, an Old Testament seminar, the professor said early in the semester, now what we're going to do is we're going to bracket out in our study some things so that we're not fighting always about issues. We're going to bracket out divine intervention, predictive prophecy, and miracles. And I thought, w what else is there? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
by the early 1920s, there's been a swing on the part of Christians to a liberal branch of Christianity. You're talking today be groups like, obviously, Unitarianism, United Methodism, United Church of Christ, groups that would not worry much about the divinity thing, Jesus as, as a good person, as a nice guy. The reaction to that was a swing right that takes place some 20 or 30 years later, a group of Christians who swung to the right. Now, let me just say, on the far right would have been the fundamentalists, the fundamentalist Baptists, for example. They swung toward the middle, is what their claim is, and they call themselves evangelicals, the new evangelicals. They're reacting to the liberal Protestants. They want, don't want to go quite that far over there to fundamentalism, where you don't believe in science or you, you believe that everybody ought to be condemned. What we see today is a growth in a liberalism of Christianity. The day we're in right now, the day of where some 70 million people in the United States alone have walked away from any form of religion or religious organization. 70 to 80 million people. That's a nation. And consequently, you also hear much these days from some pulpits about let's don't hang up on whether there was a real resurrection. What that really represents is coming to life spiritually. I think these things don't happen haphazardly. That is to say, the movement toward no religion, the fight against organized religion, the growth of the numbers of people that become nuns, N-O-N-E-S, meaning whenever they are asked to write religious preference, they put none. These are those that want to be spiritual but not religious. And to me, that means I don't want to go to church. I'm just going to have my beliefs. I think we have a challenge with liberal Christianity and certain branches of Christianity that I would say one of the real differences between the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and the Community of Christ, formerly the Reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, many wonderful people there, but the church has basically moved leftward to basically being a United Methodist faith, a belief in the Trinity, a belief that there is no one true church, and so on and so on. Great people, but it's been a surrendering to this left movement. And that's a comfortable movement. That's people, as Elder Holland would say, they want a smooth God. They don't want a hard God that asks you to keep his commandments. They want a smooth God. He doesn't ask much of you. That would be my reaction to your question. Sorry so long on that. No, I just think the the point of Jesus saying, I that speak unto thee am he, and acknowledging that he is the Son of God and divinity, it, it's too easy for people sometimes to, well, I think he was a great moral teacher. You know what C.S. Lewis said about that. Well, you, you can't have it that way. That's right. He either was the Son of God or he was crazy or something. Verse 26, I that speak unto thee, I'm going to follow up on what you said, John. I that speak unto thee am he. You notice the he is italicized? What does that mean? That's not on the manuscript. So what you're saying is right. It's the I am statement. Mm -hmm. It really reads, I that speak unto thee am. I that speak unto thee am. And there's a nice footnote comment there. The term I am used here in the Greek is identical with the Septuagint usage in Exodus 3.14, which identifies Jehovah. So. I am that I am. 
which is such a great name. I'm not I was, I used to be, I am. It's a great name. Well, our Samaritan woman has obviously been touched. And so by verse 29, she's saying to the people in town, come see this man who told me everything I ever did. <laughs> a little bit of an exaggeration, but she's got the point there. He's looked right through me. Is not this the Christ, the Messiah? Then they went out of the city and came unto him. Here we go again with levels of understanding. In the meanwhile, the disciples prayed him, saying, Master, eat. But he said unto them, I have meat to eat that ye know not of. <laughs> Therefore said the disciples one to another, Hath any man brought him something to eat? <laughs> Jesus said unto them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. When you read this, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work, reminds me of Joseph Smith saying, it is my meditation all the day and more than my meat and drink to know how I shall make the saints comprehend the visions that roll like an overflowing surge before my mind. Powerful statement. Jesus used that similar language, my meat, I feast on, I find strength in serving, helping, building people up. I think it's fun I've got in my margin, the different things that the woman at the well calls Jesus, and there's a progression. She goes from, how is it that thou, being a Jew, she goes from Jew to sir to prophet to Christ. Yeah. It's kind of fun to see that progression with her. You know, and one of the touching things, too, is chapter 3, he meets with a very religious man, Nicodemus. Chapter 4, he meets with yeah. a clearly... <laughs> unreligious woman. Yeah. I think this is organized this way on purpose to show Jesus is out to find all the sheep, every one of them. Didn't they travel in a way to avoid going through Samaria? Was this unusual for him to even be there? Jews didn't generally go through Samaria. They would go around it. Clearly, Jesus went through Samaria on purpose. Mm -hmm. He had a divine appointment he wanted to attend to. And interestingly, what he's going to do is teach the gospel to Gentiles, if you will, long before the Cornelius episode in Acts 10. This becomes a half step, if you will, toward taking the gospel to all the world. So that when we get into the book of Acts and you come to Acts chapter 8, Philip is going to go into Samaria and have tremendous success. Why? Because Jesus has already laid a foundation. Yeah, verse 39 says, Many of the Samaritans of that city believed on him for the saying of the woman, which testified, he told me all that I ever did. <laughs> and then in verse 40, he stays there two days. Many more believed because of his own word and said unto the woman, Now we believe, not because of thy saying, for we have heard him ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. That's a beautiful statement. Bob, let's compare those two one more time. I really like that exercise. I didn't want to cut it short. Here you've got a male Jewish educated leader, and you've got a Gentile female immoral woman. Yes. Outcast, and perhaps. Outcast. Which one becomes the missionary? That's correct. <laughs> it, it seemed to almost matter more at this point, at least, matter more to the woman whose sins have been greater. I mean, isn't that a little bit like, what's the, is it Luke 7? Her sins are forgiven for she 
loved much. She loved much. Yeah. It's fascinating to me that he comes in the dark and she comes in the light. And the light. Yeah, you could put those side by side. That's a fun exercise. In my mind, there's no question that John organized it just this way to make the point that Jesus comes for everyone. And at a certain point, you just say, you know what? Sin is sin. Everybody needs Jesus. And I don't care whether you're in the depths of, of sin or you are a hyper-religious person, you may need Jesus in some cases more than the, the horrible sinner because your sin is of a higher level, a sin against charity. Publican and the Pharisee, the parable fits that. The one who bangs on his chest and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And he goes home justified. That's right. The Lord is much more open to people who acknowledge, who acknowledge their sin. I was just thinking of a Book of Mormon corollary where Alma's preaching to his sons, and you come to Shiblon in chapter 38 of Alma. Do not say, O God, I thank thee that we are better than our brethren, but rather say, O Lord, forgive my unworthiness and remember my brethren in mercy. And then I love this. Yea, acknowledge your unworthiness before God at all times. And of course, King Benjamin teaches the same thing. The way to retain your remission of sins from day to day is to, one, acknowledge the power, the greatness, the goodness of God, and my own nothingness without him. That's how you maintain a, and retain a remission of sins. Let's begin with uh, verse 46 of John 4. So Jesus came again into Cana of Galilee, where he made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus was come out of Judea into Galilee, he went unto him and besought him that he would come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Then said Jesus unto him, Except ye see signs and wonders, ye will not believe. The nobleman saith unto him, Sir, come down, ere my child die, before my child dies. Jesus saith unto him, Go thy way, thy son liveth. And the man believed the word that Jesus had spoken unto him, and he went his way. It's intriguing because you would think Jesus would have to be there or touch them or say something to them or inquire about their faith. I don't know what the distance was, but it sounds like a, a long distance, uh, just another kind of miracle that he could do. Many years ago, my wife and I were struggling with a family member that was really having difficulty with life, struggling with life, and it had just sort of worn us down. And we were in a meeting with one of the members of the Twelve, and he listened, and he he was very moved and concerned. And, and I remember he gave us each a blessing, and as he put his hands on Shauna's head, he gave her a blessing personally, and then he said, I bless you, and through you, I bless your children as though my hands were laid upon their head right now. That, I think, is what we're talking about, isn't it? Wow, yeah. In other words, the distance doesn't matter sometimes. And I had a loved one that was having difficulty a long ways away. And I remember the number of times I've said to the Lord in prayer, I have a faith that if I could be there, I could give them a blessing and they could be made well. And I've asked the Lord, would you bless them as though I were there? I think there's something to that that's significant. Distance is not an issue. I have a statement, uh, another statement of Elder Bruce R. McConkie. He said, though he was in Cana, Jesus gave the command and the nobleman's son, some 20 miles away in Capernaum, was healed. 
By the power of faith, the sick are healed regardless of their geographical location. God is God of the universe. His power is everywhere manifest. Beautifully said. Bob, this has been fantastic. Let me read to you something out of the manual here I really like. It says, at a marriage feast in Cana, Christ changed water into wine, an event John called the beginning of miracles. That's true in more than one sense. While this was the first miracle Jesus performed publicly, it can also symbolize another miraculous beginning, the process of our hearts being transformed as we become ever more like the Savior. The miracle of a lifetime begins with the decision to follow Jesus Christ, to change and live a better life through him. This miracle can be so life-changing that being born again, so now they bring in Nicodemus, is one of the best ways to describe it. But rebirth is just the beginning of the path of discipleship. Christ's words to the Samaritan woman at the well remind us that if we continue on the path, eventually the gospel will become a well of water inside us, springing up into everlasting life. Love how the manual kind of said that there's a beginning miracle here, changing water into wine, and it can become a born again experience and then eventually a well of water. I thought it was a great way to put these three chapters together. What do you hope our listeners and feel free to become Grandpa Millet here. What do you hope our listeners uh, get out of these four chapters? As they're doing their best to live the gospel and to raise righteous children, what do you hope they get out of it? Let me read you something first. I brought this for some reason, and maybe this is part of it. I'm reading to you from a man named N.T. Wright. N.T. Wright, Nicholas Thomas Wright, Tom Wright, perhaps one of the most respected and beloved believing scholars of the New Testament in the world. That's a large thing. Let me just read what he said. He's talking about rebirth. I've lost my birth certificate. It's the sort of thing that happens when you move house, which we did not long ago. I knew where it was in the old house. It may have been accidentally thrown away, but I suspect it was put into a very, very safe place, and the place was so safe that I couldn't find it. Fortunately, I don't need it at the moment. I have a passport and other documents. Sooner or later, if it doesn't show up, I shall have to get a replacement, which means going back to the town where I was born and paying to have a new copy made from the register there. But, of course, the one thing that a birth certificate isn't needed for is to prove that a birth took place. Here I am, a human <laughs> being. Obviously, I must have been born. <laughs> The fact that at the moment I can't officially prove when and where is a minor detail. <laughs> when Christians discuss the new birth, the second birth, or the birth from above, they often forget this. Some people experience their entry into Christian faith as a huge, tumultuous event with a dramatic buildup, a painful moment of decision, and then tidal waves of relief, joy, exhilaration, forgiveness, and love. They are then easily tempted, and there are movements of thought within Christian culture which make this temptation all the more powerful. Tempted to think that this moment itself is the center of what it means to be Christian, as though what God wanted was simply to give people a single wonderful spiritual experience to be remembered ever afterwards with a warm glow. But that's a bit like someone framing their birth certificate. <laughs> hanging it on the wall and insisting on showing it to everyone who comes into the house. 
What matters for most purposes is not that once upon a time you were born, though of course sometimes it matters that you can prove when and where you were born. What matters is that you are alive now, and that your present life, day by day, moment by moment, is showing evidence of health and strength and purpose. Physical birth is often painful and difficult for the baby as well as for the mother. But you don't spend your life talking about what a difficult birth you had, unless for some tragic reason it has left you with medical problems. You get on with being the person you are now. So when Jesus talks to Nicodemus about the new birth, and when John highlights this conversation by making it the first of several in-depth discussions Jesus has in this gospel, we shouldn't suppose that this means that we should spend all our time thinking about the moment of our own spiritual birth. It matters that it happened, of course. Sadly, there are many, inside the church as well as outside, whose present state suggests that one ought to go back to examine whether in fact a real spiritual birth took place at all. But where there are signs of life, it's more important to feed and nurture it than to spend much time going over and over what happened at the moment of birth. Don't you think that's beautiful? That's yeah. awesome. What he's addressing himself to is that so often Christians will say, I became a Christian when I was born again on January 12, 1969. And that's great. The real issue becomes, yeah, well, what kind of a person are you now? I mean, this gets at the whole issue of being born again is a gradual process. Let me give you one personal experience, if I may. As a teenager, and just before I left on a mission, I had some relationships with young women, good girls, but more than once, they made a wise decision and left me. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, in one case, I found out that while they were going with me, they were going with someone else at the same time. It just sort of bludgeoned my heart. So I went on a mission, had a good mission, came home, two years after being home, married my wife, Shauna. She's an amazing, amazing person. But I had a problem. I had a jealousy problem. And it dated back to those times when people were dishonest to me or hurt me. And time after time, I would say or do things that really hurt her. One day, I remember we were sitting in the car where now the BYU Law School is. It was a parking lot. <laughs> we were sitting there in the car. And she looked at me and she said, have I ever done anything, really done anything that would cause you to doubt my loyalty to you? I said, no. And then she said, why then do you continue to torture me? It was, it was that word torture that got my attention. And I knew then and there that something had to change. I began a serious season of prayer and fasting and seeking and hoping. And it took a few months, but I look back now and I can remember when it was no longer there. I think of those moments back then when I would say insulting things to her and it just kills me. I, I can't imagine me doing that. I know of the reality of, of the new birth because I've experienced it. As I prayed, I remember saying to the Lord, I sense that unless this gets solved, I'm going to ruin a beautiful thing. And it was something that had to be changed. And so it was, thank heavens. And, and I think 
being born again, it sort of defies, there's a sense in which it defies physical birth, because in many ways we're born again and again and again. Elder McConkie said it, we're born again a little bit here and a little later we're born again. We spend our life being born anew in the sense that we come alive to things we feel that we didn't feel before. If I find myself thinking or doing things I shouldn't, well, I do everything I can to solve that problem, but there's some things I can't do to solve that problem and only God can solve. I, I just think the concept of the new birth we need to be wise in how we look at it because while there are dramatic experiences again and again and again, especially in the Book of Mormon, of people being born again almost in an instant, that is seldom the case. Those experiences are revealed and put into the Scriptures because they are so dramatic. It would be like supposing that every time we pray, we need to have an Enos experience. I'm guessing Enos didn't have that kind of experience many times in his life. It was sufficient. I think it would be wrong for us to, pose, to suppose that we need to be worrying and worrying and worrying. I had a young lady when I was teaching, early in my teaching at BYU, a young lady, beautiful young lady in my class, Book of Mormon. She came into my office and said, could I speak to you? Certainly, come in. And she began to cry. And this is, I mean, when I say a beautiful girl, I don't just mean pretty. I mean she glowed. There was just a light that just burned within her. And in class, by the way, she was the head of the class. She knew the gospel. She came in and she said, she started crying. I said, what's the matter? She said, I'm so ashamed. And I said, now is this something you want to talk to me about or, or should you talk to your bishop? She said, no, it's not that. She said, I don't think I've ever had an experience like Alma had. At that moment, I thought of the different ways I could answer her. I guess I could have said, I could have said, really? Ooh, that is really too bad. Or, whoa, you better watch out when you cross the street. Or, what if I'd said this? Oh, hang on, you'll have it one day eventually. It would be wrong for me to do that. Why? And I said to her, I can see in your countenance, you don't have to have an Alma experience. You've grown bit by bit by bit, but you don't notice it. But other people do. The whole notion of being born again, we, we have to bring it down to life and say, I begin to get better at things. I begin to get better at this and this with the Lord's help. In my case, gradually, 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 jealousy left me and now seems like something that horrifies me that I ever felt that way. But it took time. I think I probably got this from you, Brother Millet, but President Ezra Taft Benson said, for every Paul, for every Enos, for every King Lamoni, there are hundreds and thousands of others for whom the process of repentance is much more subtle, much more imperceptible. Day by day, they move closer to the Lord, little realizing they are building a godlike life. It's a beautiful statement. They live quiet lives of goodness, service, and commitment. And they are like the Lamanites, who the Lord's who are baptized with fire and with the Holy Ghost, and they knew it not. <laughs> and like you said, Elder McConkie said, oh, those are so extreme, they get written up in the scriptures. But yeah, I think that's a really important point to make. It's a warning is too strong, but it's a caution for teachers of the gospel. Yeah. That we not so dramatize the experiences, the dramatic experiences in scripture to the point where we have students leaving thinking they've got to have something like that mm -hmm. 
or they haven't really been born again, when in fact, day by day, they're getting better and better and better. That's true with homemakers. That's true with men of the priesthood. It's true with children. The ones in the scriptures are exceptional, not typical. I think Elder Christopherson yeah. says something recently in the same way. But that is helpful because you may think, I'm supposed to feel like this or else I'm not doing it right. You don't need an Alma experience because you haven't been where Alma was, thank <laughs> heavens. <laughs> Good point. It is a process, and in many cases, it's a slow process. Here's a thought and a question for both of you, straight out of the Come Follow Me manual. It says, Elder Jeffrey R. Holland taught, quote, the first great truth of all eternity is that God loves us with all of his heart, mind, and strength. And then this question, how have you felt the love of God through the gift of his son? We want all of our listeners to feel that if they can in all the various ways that God manifests himself. How have you felt the love of God through the gift of his son? Well, I start first personally the reason I can bear testimony of the power of Christ to forgive sins is he's forgiven my sins. I think that's where most of us have to begin and say, I know what it's like to feel awful. I know what it's like to feel dark. I know what it's like to feel like I'm never going to make it. I've been there. But I also know what it's like for that to be lifted like a film and to feel clean, to feel strengthened, to feel edified again. I testify of the Christ atonement because I've experienced Christ's atonement, and I continue to again and again and again. Let me give you a cute story. When I was state president, a young lady came in, beautiful girl, returned missionary, came in for a temple recommend. So I asked all the right questions, and she gave all the right answers. I asked this question. So spiritually speaking, tell me, how are you doing? And she said, President Mill, I am doing so, so good. I said, well, how good are you doing? She said, I haven't had to repent in months. <laughs> I said, whoa, you are doing good. I don't think I've ever met anybody like you. Now, we talked about it, and clearly what she's saying is, I haven't done something so horrible that I had to confess it to my bishop. Right. And she missed the whole point that President Nelson's now trying to teach us, that is, it's a daily process. And to help her see that was a real fun experience because when she thought of repentance, she thought of, oh, i got to go talk to the bishop. No. I mean, repentance is improvement. Repentance is refinement. Repentance is growth. I've experienced it in a lot of ways. I've experienced it, too. I've experienced the love of Jesus through the years through people who changed my life. That is, the Lord had blessed them with a light and a power about them, and my life was never the same after that. I think back of key people in my life, teachers, Sunday school teachers, priest advisors, mission presidents, wonderful little lady that taught us in Sunday school. It's one of the most distant memories I have of sitting in Sunday school, her teaching a lesson and bearing her testimony. I'll never be the same. I think, for example, we were in a little branch made up largely of sisters. This is in Louisiana. Not many brothers there. Either their husbands had died or their husbands were inactive or their husbands weren't members of the church. But it was the testimonies they bore in testimony meeting that moved me to the core. Normally, you think a teenager would hear somebody old talking. You say, oh, yeah. No, there was something about that. So the Lord's blessed me through other people. The Lord has blessed me th through the teaching of great teachers. I've been moved by his spirit 
as I've listened to people who are what they teach, there is an integrity about them that touches me. I felt the love of Christ in my life a great deal from watching myself change, watching gradually as things that I valued so highly matter precious little to me now. Things that I hated before that are now an important part of my life. There are a lot of ways the love of Christ can bless us, and it isn't just through forgiveness. The number of times I've been physically very, very ill, and I had to speak <laughs> somewhere. I was on a Know Your Religion tour through Alaska, and we came into one big city, and I had a horrible, horrible, horrible headache. I was nauseous. And the people picked me up, and I was going to stay at their home. And I said to them, I'm so sick. I'm so sorry, but could I go lie down? Sure. I'm lying down. And after a while, they called me down for dinner, and the last thing I wanted was dinner. And the <laughs> smell in the air made me sicker. But we got to the church finally, and I'm sitting on the stand while the stake president's conducting the meeting, and I'm thinking to myself, and I don't mean to be gross, I was trying to decide whether I was going to pass out or throw up. Yeah. <laughs> which would be less offensive to the congregation. <laughs> and I prayed and prayed. I stood up. The headache was gone immediately. I spoke for an hour and 20 minutes, sat down, and the headache came back. Okay. <laughs> I thought, I mean, have you guys experienced that? That sometimes the Lord blesses you for the benefit of others. <laughs> it was a funny experience. I just think that President Eyring was the one that taught so beautifully the value of sitting down at the end of each day or frequently and writing the things that the Lord has done for you, writing down the things the Lord has done for you. Document the hand of God in your life. Never forget that. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. This topic in John 3 of, of being born again, and ye must be born again. And I find that phrase throughout the standard work, she must be born again. So I ask my class, if we must be born again, we must figure out what that means. And is being baptized the same as being born again? And I get answers all over the place. And I think what we've arrived at through statements from the living prophets and things is that baptism is an event. But being born again is a process, as you have said. Agreed. It's kind of like my temple wedding was an event, but having a celestial marriage is an ongoing process, mostly of me repenting. I love what you said about you're born again and again and again. So yeah, baptism, I can tell you the date and the time and show you a certificate if I could find it. <laughs> but being born again, ongoing, and let's be patient with ourselves as we keep ongoing. And maybe we're born again to principles at a time. Do you know what I'm saying? Something you might have thought so strange and unusual and odd, you look back on it and you say, I totally miss that. I think I understand it now. I mean, maybe it isn't this large grand process so much as it is little pieces at a time of my soul being born again. My understanding of this or my appreciation for that. I think one of the things, too, that we ought to say, and that is this, because the brethren have stressed it so much, and I've seen it so much, dear, dear friends of mine who were once very strong members of the church, very much involved in the church and its programs, who experience what I don't know what else to call but spiritual amnesia. They leave the church, and then they've got to find some reason for having left. 
There has to be a rationale. Whether they realize they're doing it or not, what they're doing is saying, I'm redefining my past. I'm going to say, I suppose that what I experienced in the temple didn't really happen. I suppose that what I felt when I bore testimony as a missionary, that wasn't real. And I know that Elder Holland's talked about this a lot, and that is once you've had that kind of an experience, don't run away from it. Keep those things in memory, that concept of remember. We had an experience, my youngest son and I went down to Louisiana for a visit many years ago. My custom, because I'm such a sentimental cuss, is to always go back and visit old places where I was, <laughs> which drives my family crazy. They're bored to death. But I took my son, and we drove north of Baton Rouge to a little community where we had once attended a branch that became a ward. And, and I said to my son, you see that church house there? It was our church. He said, yeah. I said, you know what? You see that white paint on the outside? He says, yeah. I said, I put that there. He said, really? I said, yeah, and I'll show you where else I painted. I painted there. You see how steep that roof is right there? Yeah. I helped put those planks up there, and I slid down that roof once, and a nail caught me, and I still have a scar. And I went on, and of course, he's thinking, what in the heck are you doing? What is this about? And what I was saying to him was, there's something of me in that. That is, the memory I have of, I said, that's the building where I first bore my testimony. That's the building where I left and I went on a mission. What it reminded me of was this from the Book of Mormon in, in chapter 18 of Mosiah. It came to pass that this was all done in Mormon, yea, by the waters of Mormon, in the forest that was near the waters of Mormon, yea, the place of Mormon, the waters of Mormon, the forest of Mormon. <laughs> How beautiful are they to the eyes of them who there came to the knowledge of their Redeemer. Wow. Yea, and how blessed are they, for they shall sing to his praise forever. There are those moments of memory that are so sacred that we need to hold on to, that when I'm having a moment of doubt or a time of doubt, I need to stop and say, wait a minute, let's think about what I've experienced. Let's think about what I've come to know. Can I really doubt that? Avoiding the spiritual amnesia that is so rampant out there, someone literally having to reinterpret their past. I think that's sad. And Elder Holland's taught so many times, let's remember what you experienced. Mm, yeah. Keep in your head, in your heart, what you went through. I like King Benjamin. He talked about commandments, but keep it before their eyes. And a Mormon to Moroni saying, I'm sorry, may not the things which I have written grieve thee. Things are so bad, but may Christ lift thee up and may his sufferings and his death, his showing our body to our fathers, let that great phrase, rest in your mind forever. Yeah. There ought to be some things that are in our heart and mind that, that never there. leave. Yeah. What a great day we've had with Dr. Robert Millett. He's our friend Bob to us. Thank you so much for being here. We've loved having you. We want to thank our executive producer, Shannon Sorensen. We want to thank our sponsors, David and Verla Sorensen. And of course, we want to remember our founder, the late Steve Sorensen. We hope all of you will join us next week. We're continuing in the New Testament on Follow Him. Today's transcripts, show notes, and additional references are available on our website, followhim.co, followhim.co. And you can watch the podcast on YouTube with additional videos on Facebook and Instagram. All of this is absolutely free, so be sure to share with your family and friends. To reach those who are searching for help with their Come Follow Me study, please subscribe, rate, review, or comment on the podcast, which makes the podcast easier to find. Thank you.
We have an amazing production crew we want you to know about. David Perry, Lisa Spice, Jamie Nielsen, Will Stoughton, Crystal Roberts, and Biel Cuadra. Thank you to our amazing production team.